see what happens. Uh, thank you, Allison. Uh, when, when we got her set up for the women's conference, she said, uh, well, you know, if you guys want, um, I can do music on a Sunday morning. And um, we were like, oh, that's, that's great. Gives our music team a week off to just sit and worship. I've offered to do that for them several times. Like, and uh, they're like, no, we're good. We're good. Thanks for anyways. But, so they like you better than me, apparently. So. Good morning. Glad that you're joining us uh, here at Crossroads. If you're in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're, you're here. Uh, welcome to 92 degree October. Um, just happened to look up and it's October already, but it still feels like summer. I was doing uh, an interview with the TV station this week, and uh, it kind of as we were setting up talking to the camera guy, and he goes, I just moved here like two months ago. Where's this Midwest winter I, I hear all about? Like, <laughs> just hang on, buddy. It's coming. Uh, it'll be here. Um, you know, in two months, you'll be buried under a foot of snow and uh, ice, and, and then you'll be wishing for 92 degree October, but we're not there yet. Uh, last week, um, got up here and um, talked for just a few minutes, and you know, we, we talked over the last couple weeks about just the things that we have moving forward, things that we have coming up, and, and how we said, you know, are, are there some things that we should change, some things that we should cancel, you know, just in light of everything that's happened over the last two weeks, and I mean, we had some serious discussions about that, but we finally just decided, no, we're not going to. And one of those that was immediately on the horizon was the women's conference that was uh, scheduled for last night that that Allison was a part of and and that Jesse and the women's team put on. And uh, we said, no, we're not going to to change that. If we have to change the tone a little bit or an approach a little bit, that's one thing, but we're we're not going to stop doing what God has for us to do in, in light of what's happened. And uh, when we started planning this conference uh, over a year ago, you know, Jesse wanted to bring in some speakers, and I said, you know, how many tickets do we need to sell to offset the cost of that? And I don't remember what her total was, but I know she more than doubled that. Um, yeah, that's... It, I could, it was so fun to watch her excitement, because every time she would get a new number, she would text it to me almost immediately. And so it was like, you know... 2.30, then it was 2.40 something, then it was 2.60 something, and yesterday she texted me at 3 o'clock and goes, we're at 291 tickets sold. And I think they said there were almost 275 that were here last night worshiping God. And uh, ladies, if you didn't make it, if you missed it, as, as one of my pastors I grew up with used to say, if you missed it, you missed it. And I want to encourage you, make sure you're here next year for it. Guys, ours is coming up in three weeks. Make sure you're here for it because we're going to worship God anyway. We're going to worship God anyway. Hey, we're glad you're here with us today. We're in week three of this series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's week three, but it feels like we've been in this series now for three months. It's just the last couple of weeks have felt like such a long time. But just a quick recap on this series. We started by talking about who the Spirit is, the person of the Spirit, making sure we refer to the Spirit as a he, not an it, because when we realize the Spirit is a person, he becomes personal. Last week, Brad talked about the Spirit uh, as, as the presence in our lives and, and the promise he gives to us and what the Spirit does for us, talking about how he guides us and counsels us and leads us. Next week, we'll wrap this series up by talking about the power of the Spirit, what the Spirit does through us. But today, we're going to talk about the presence of the Spirit in our lives and what he does in us, what the Spirit does in us. And you might remember I asked you back in the first week, of the series, how many of you, if you could, would have Jesus right beside you 
all the time, every day. And, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'd love that. Guiding you, helping you out, teaching you, and showing you what to do. And we said that as great as that sounds, the Holy Spirit in you is better than Jesus beside you. Because Jesus, while he was on this earth, despite being God in the flesh, was confined to time and space like we are. And so he was limited. Yes, he could heal from far, but before his resurrection, Jesus was where he was, just like we are. And so if I needed him here in Kansas City and he's tied up in Atlanta, I'm just, I've got to wait my turn. But the Spirit resides in each and every one of us, and because of that goes where each and every one of us go. If you have given your life to Christ, the Spirit is in you. And today we're going to look at what exactly that means, what the Spirit is doing in you. Kind of start off like this, the presence of the Holy Spirit in you transforms you. Like this is a little different. A lot of times when I preach, I lead up to the main point. You're getting it right off the bat today. The presence of, of the Spirit in you transforms you. Here's why. Because the Holy Spirit in you is the power of God in you. The Holy Spirit in you is the power of God in you. You may say, what in the world does that mean? And again, next week, we're, this is almost kind of, this week and next week are kind of two parts of the same sermon I, even though it's a 7 o'clock kickoff tonight, I didn't think I was going to keep you here for two hours. So just, you know, bear with us. We've got plenty of time this afternoon before kickoff. But what does that look like and what does that mean? How is the Spirit in us transforming us on a regular basis? Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Now pay attention to that first line there. You were marked with a seal. We think about seals and, and, and how things can be sealed and how they can be kind of preserved because whoever is the recipient of whatever this is is the only one who should be the one to open it. In ancient times, they would use a seal. And often that looked like a, a signet ring dipped in wax and pressed into something. If a letter was being sent, it would be folded shut, sealed shut, and it would be marked almost like we would do now with a special code that only we could generate or only we could produce. And so therefore, when you received my letter, you know I was the last person that saw that. Nobody else opened that. Nobody else got into that. It's kind of like certified mail these days. Or, or somebody mentioned like in a trucking company, they'll seal it with a metal band. It's actually a felony to break that band if you're not the person who's supposed to be cutting it off. But that's what, that, that's what the seal represents. The contents of the package are reserved for the recipient only. And to break that, there was punishment. I mean, even Pilate put his seal on the tomb of Jesus so he could know if it had been tampered with. He didn't want anybody in there. The seal was a guarantee that what was inside was for the person that was supposed to be receiving it. And here, Paul says, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean and look like? It means what's, what's, what we are is for God and not for anyone else. And that seal is interesting because that's, that's not something that we can see. I mean, I can't see if, if you've got a seal on you, you can't see if I've got one on me, but the angels of heaven can. And if the angels of heaven can see that you belong to God, guess who else can see that you belong to God? The demons of hell. They can see that seal. And they know there will be hell to pay if they mess with you. Now, does that mean that they don't occasionally crack through that seal? Sure, they can. But there's going to be, again, consequences for them if they do that. 
But that seal over us shows the Spirit is in us and working a transformation inside of us. If you've got a Bible today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And we're just going to walk through this to look at how the Spirit transforms you. And there's so many ways. We're going to focus on a few, and then there's kind of some, some ways of, of each of those types of transformation. There's just so much to be said about this. But Romans 8, if you're not familiar with it, uh, Romans 8 is maybe the highest point of the Bible, in my opinion. Like, there's not really any low points. There's some spots that you're reading going, oh, this is boring. I didn't say that out loud. I said it quiet. But, like, the New Testament's kind of this mountain range of peaks, Right? Some are higher than others. Romans 8 might be Mount Everest. It might be the tightest, most important collection of words ever written to help shape the Christian faith. And in this particular chapter, the reason we're going to camp out here today is because in this chapter, we see one word repeated over and over. And I've told you this before, one of the number one rules of interpreting the Bible, of hermeneutics, which is interpreting what Scripture says, is you look for repetition. Look for repetition in there. And we see 21 times the Greek word pneuma. Remember that word we talked about a few weeks ago? The Greek word for spirit. 21 times it's mentioned in these these verses. 19 of them refer directly to the Holy Spirit. So to look at how the Spirit can transform us, we're just going to walk our way through this chapter. The first way the Spirit transforms you is this. The Holy Spirit transforms you with freedom. He transforms you with freedom. And to start, a couple of ways, the first one is he transforms you with freedom from condemnation. This is a big one. Because this is something that we deserve, something that we're very good at doing to one another, but this is how we are are freed from. Paul starts off his letter or his chapter here in Romans 8 with the word therefore. I don't have it up here on the screen, we just jump into the next word, but the word therefore. And again, another rule of interpretation, when you see the word therefore, you ask the question, what is therefore, therefore? And so you start looking backwards. And in Romans, Paul kind of walks through it like this. Romans 1, you are a terrible, no good, very bad, dirty, rotten sinner. It's very uplifting. Romans uh, 2 and 3 starts leading into what Jesus did on the cross for you because you're such a very terrible, no good, rotten, no good, very bad sinner. Romans 4, endure in your faith even though you're a terrible, rotten, no good, very bad sinner. Romans 5, you're going to have peace that leads to endurance even though you're a terrible, rotten, no good. It's like, Paul, this is wonderful writing, dude. Like, I'm feeling so good about myself as I read this. Number six, you're, you're such a, a rotten sinner. You need to die to yourself and raise in baptism through Christ. And then he goes through all that, and finally, and therefore, there's now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. It's like, oh, okay. Now I see where we're going, Paul. Now I see that despite all this stuff you just said about me, what? There's no condemnation? Like, you read this, and you're like, this makes no sense whatsoever. Why? Because we're not very good at doing this ourselves. If somebody's wronged me, I remember that. If somebody's wronged somebody I love, I definitely remember that. I don't need a show of hands, but who is good at holding grudges? I would say most of us probably are. And I'm, like I said, I'm really good at letting stuff roll off of me. But my wife, my kids, my family, the people that are closest to me, that sticks a bit more. My, my dad or my husband or my, my, my son or brother, or th- those, those ears go up. You know, and I get a little bit more defensive of, of people like that. 
And I wonder how many of us are the same. But sometimes those grudges we hold aren't even always geared towards other people. Sometimes my hardest and worst grudges I hold are inward. They're towards myself because I know what I've done more so than other people might. And sometimes the hardest person for me to forgive isn't somebody else, it's myself. Because I know what I've done to God. I know what I did against him and how I hurt him. And then he tells me he loves me anyway. I'm like, that that doesn't make sense. And so to think about this, to read that there is now no condemnation from Christ. Sometimes, if you're not a believer, it can be a little bit hard to believe. It can be a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. But Paul kind of takes that a step further in the next verse, and I don't have this on the screen, but verse 2, he says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free, specifically free from the law of sin and death. So how does the Spirit transform you? He transforms you with freedom from condemnation. And because of that, he transforms you with freedom to new life, the new life that comes with that. There's this, this battle that we don't often talk about, but there's this kind of this cosmic spiritual battle that goes on, and you are the battlefield. I am the battlefield. That, that's, that's where the enemy wants to attack. Why? Because we don't see that. We don't see spiritual battles. We see fleshly, physical battles, but not spiritual battles. But often those battles take place in our mind, being told to look this way or look that way and trying to decide or decipher which is right and ultimately which do I want. Paul gives warning about that in verse 5. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. In other words, this is what I want, so this is what I'm going to do. And that's often where sin leads us and distracts us into what the flesh wants. But he goes on to say, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on spiritual desires. Now, that last part there doesn't mean if your mind is set on the Spirit, you're never going to be tempted and you're never going to fall. That, that happens. I had a pastor one time say uh, that, that somebody asked him, well, you're a Christian, you're a pastor, so that must mean you never sin, right? And he responded, no, I do. I just don't want to. And just the simple way he said that hit me. I'm like... That makes so much sense. Of course we do. But that's not our goal. Like, like, we don't just live for ourselves. We don't just live for whatever fleshly, worldly, earthly desires that looks good or feels good, so let's do it, right? No, we live for God. And Paul takes it a step further by saying where those two mindsets lead. Verse 6, he says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Now, if I were to have two doors back here behind me, door number one and two, hey, door number one, you can go through this, but there's death. Door number two, there's life and there's peace. Take your pick. Who's willingly going to walk through door number one? But yet we do time and time again. Why? Because door number one looks good. It looks pretty. It looks like something we really, really want. Door number two, we, we can't always see what it does look like. But often we follow through door number one, and we, we, we find death on the other side. Again, I don't need a show of hands to ask how many of you have experienced hurt in this world. How many of you have experienced times where things don't make sense? That's often what we find. And, and often the question gets asked, and over the last two weeks the question has been asked, 
Why does God allow things like this to happen? Why does God allow things like this to happen to people who don't deserve it? Why does God, my, my, my 11-year-old asked me this, why did God let this happen? I said, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. I wish I did. Not that it would make it make sense or not that it would help, but we just asked the question anyway because we need to know. And to be fair, that is the number one stumbling block for non-believers is that very question. And the simplest answer that I can give, it's not always a popular one, especially to skeptics, but the simplest answer I can give is bad things happen in the world because we weren't created for this world. We're here for a short time. And these fleshly bodies we wear will die off and then we'll move on into eternity. But for this time, we just endure that. We weren't created for this world. We were created for a kingdom that is here but not yet here, that is today but it's tomorrow and it's beyond. That's why we celebrate baptism. Because baptism is dying to that old way of life. It's dying to the physical self and being raised into new life with Jesus and being raised into new life with the Spirit. And because of all of that, when we mourn, and we do, and we have a lot lately, we're mourning not like those without hope. Paul gives us that assurance in, in, in 1 Corinthians that we don't mourn as those with no hope. Because we do have hope. And we'll talk more about hope here in just a minute. But we live by the Spirit. And that doesn't make sense to people who don't understand God and understand the Spirit. We're in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Paul says in verse 9, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. That's why we talk about repentance and we talk about giving your heart to God and accepting him as your Lord and Savior and being baptized and submitting and surrendering to him. That's why we say those things because that's what we believe, that when Christ comes into your heart and into your life, the Spirit comes in with him. The Spirit's there with him to guide you, to lead you, to transform you. But the Spirit not only transforms you, with freedom, the Spirit transforms you. I kind of alluded to this a minute ago. With hope. He gives you hope, especially when hope doesn't make sense. That's something that we could all use in our world. Because we live in a world that feels and looks and seems hopeless too often. But no, the Spirit transforms us with a true hope. A couple of ways. Number one, the hope to belong. Uh, how many of you have ever struggled, again, you, know, you see hands, just answer this for yourself, but you've struggled with a sense of belonging. I know for me, especially when I was a kid and even when I was a young adult, that was, that was one of the hardest things for me is where do I belong? Like, like I was always kind of on the fringe or the periphery of, of my friends' groups. I was never super right in the middle of any of these. Often the last pick, you know, at, at recess or... or um, we were playing games. I was either the last pick or the next to last pick. It depended if one of the girls was playing football with us that day. Um, you know, if she showed up, I wasn't the last pick, which I probably shouldn't really be a bragging point in life, but, you know, at that point, I needed whatever I could take. So it's fine. I, I don't cling to that, you know, hurt anymore. It's, it's in the past. It's fine. We moved, we moved on past that. But no, he gives us a hope and a sense of belonging. Here's how Paul kind of describes this in verse 15. He says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Again, rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Think about that here for just a moment. Your adoption. 
What does adoption do? Adoption takes a child that is not yours and legally and officially makes that child yours. And through adoption, you give that child your name and you give that child a permanent place with you. And Paul has just said, that's what we have now. That the spirit we received leads us to adoption, to sonship with God. And here's why that's important. He goes on in the end of verse 15. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children. Think about the benefits of being someone's child. You get their name. And you get an inheritance from that parent. And I look at my kids because, you know, I've got my three kids, and I hope that one day I've got a good inheritance for them. I don't necessarily mean financial or material inheritance, but a legacy or a faith or whatever it is that, that I, I have when my day comes. I've got that for my three kids, and whatever it is, it's going to be split evenly among my three kids. And if you adopt somebody in, they get a share in that too. They get to take part in that as well too. And what is our inheritance? Well, look what he says in verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. And not just heirs with God, but look what he says, co-heirs with Christ. Just wrap your mind around that for a second here. You are a co-heir with Jesus. And what does Jesus stand to inherit? Everything. All of creation is his. And it says when we get to the end of the book that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and we will be there with him and he will call us his and we will call him our God. And we get all of that with Jesus. I don't know what heaven's going to look like. I don't know what this new creation is going to look like. Um, we asked one time when I was in Bible college, you know, is such and such going to be in heaven? We were college students. Use your imagination what such and such was, okay? And the response was, I don't know, but if it's not, it's because heaven is so amazing you don't even miss it. Those things in, in the earth that we think are great or amazing will just pale in comparison to this eternal kingdom that we get to inherit with Jesus, that we get to share with him because we are called his children. We get the hope of, of, of adoption and the hope to belong, but we also get the hope to endure. The Spirit transforms us with the hope to endure. And that might be one of the things we need to cling to the most right now. Because yes, we know the kingdom is coming, but right now we're here. And right now we're dealing with what is here. Verse 22, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. What he's saying there at the last part of that is that, that adoption to sonship and the resurrection and redemption of our bodies comes when we are with Christ. And we're not there yet. We're in the kingdom, but we're not in the kingdom. And I'll, I'll, that's a much deeper topic that we can talk about at an, another time. But the, the phrase in this that sticks out to me is the grown inwardly. And lately, it's, you know, it's inwardly, it's outwardly, it's all this. To think of groaning, it's not like you know, we, we groan with one another, like, oh, really? Like, not like that big sigh of frustration. But just kind of that almost 
I think of all those hard negative emotions that we've experienced the last couple of weeks, that we have dealt with the last couple of weeks. There are so many times throughout the New Testament we are called to suffer. And you've heard me say several times the last few weeks and beyond that, Jesus told us that in this world we will have trouble. I, I always thought if God would give me for just one day this eternal spiritual eraser. It said, Kurt, you know what? Anything that's in the Bible that you don't like, you can remove. I know right where I'm going. Jesus, I love you. I love your words. Uh, I'm not going to have trouble in this world. Nope. No, sir. Paul, great writer, great preacher, calling us to suffer. Nah, you know what? We don't need that. But it's there. And, and it's there because Paul knew that we would suffer. Jesus knew that we would suffer. In these last couple of weeks, man, how have we suffered? How have we hurt? How have we voiced and vented anger and frustration and all of those emotions, inwardly and outwardly? And I don't know about you guys, I have shed more tears in the last two weeks than I probably had in the last two years. There have been times where I have tried to be strong and times where I just couldn't be. And I think a lot of you probably were the same way here. And yet, day by day, we were able to just keep taking steps forward, even when it didn't make sense. And I told you this last week, that somebody at 8 o'clock asked me, I hope you felt the prayers of the church this week, and I said, why do you think I am still standing here? Because that is the only reason I am still standing here. And now, after the second week, it's the same thing, because there's something in me that gives me endurance, even though I don't feel like I've got it. Even though I don't feel... Every day, like, I just want to get up and go face the day. There's something in me. And Paul defines that with a word that doesn't always make sense to everybody. It's the word hope. He says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. A couple of parts of this really stick out. They're in the middle. It says, who hopes for what they already have? It's like getting past Christmas morning and then making your Christmas wish list. I hope this comes. Well, you know if you got it or not. It, it's, it's understanding this mindset that hope is holding your hands out and hoping that something gets filled in there, not having it in your hands to see it already. But there at the end, too, he says that we don't have it, yet we wait for it patiently. Last night, uh, the ladies' conference, I, I got here to kind of to watch some of the video of, of Mallory. If you, if you don't know her story, she had this tragic thing happen where basically her body just shut down and, and had no activity for a stretch and then came back, but she lost basically all motor skills and, and is learning how to, to function and talk again. And it's a very difficult road for her, but she said towards the end of her video, I know God's going to heal me in his time. And then she looks up and she goes, but I'm ready now. <laughs> and that's, that's all of us. God, I trust your timing. Not really, but I trust your timing. You know, come on, my timing's better because I know I've got plans tomorrow and I need this done. No, we wait patiently. Maybe not so patiently, but we wait anyway. That's hope. And hope that can't be seen, that's where faith comes in. Often when somebody asks us what is faith, we point them to the, the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Because the writer defines faith like this. as faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not yet see. 
Some translations will say evidence of what we don't see. And I, I think about that particular translation because how many of you would love to be on trial someday? And your defense attorney walks in and goes, okay, I got the case. We're good. Gets up and goes, the judge goes, okay, what do you got? And he goes, a mountain of evidence, but you can't see it. Just trust me. You're like, what am I paying you for? <laughs> and yet that's what they just said. That's what, that's what faith is. Faith is the evidence of what we can't see. But that doesn't mean faith is unfounded. That doesn't mean our faith is unreasonable. It doesn't mean our faith is illogical. Because again, our faith is based on a Savior that told us, in this world you will have what? Trouble. And trouble will find us. But yet we believe in that Savior who said he would overcome the world. And we lean into him even when those times seem hopeless. And the spirit of him that resides in us guides us through those times when it feels hopeless. I don't know how many times in the last couple of weeks I have opened my mouth to pray and there's nothing coming out. Because I just can't think of what to say. And way back in the back of my brain, there's this enemy saying, it's kind of pointless to say that anyway. Just that little gnaw of skepticism. Saying, you know, you can pray this, but this is pretty hopeless. There's a hopeless situation we read about in the Old Testament. And in the midst of that, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah with a verse that many of you have on your wall. When he said, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's a great verse that many of you, again, probably have in a frame on your wall or you have as a life verse. But when you step back and look at the whole story and the context around this, Israel had been taken captive, kidnapped out of their own land and taken away and put into a new land where they didn't know the language or the customs or the culture or the geography. Basically, they had no idea where they were because in the minds of their captors, they're not going to rebel and revolt if they feel that it's hopeless. And it was. And they were on the verge of giving up. So God speaks to the prophet saying, no, I know these plans I have for you. I am hope in a hopeless situation. The world can't give you hope. We can try, but we just can't do that because we're limited. He gives us one that endures. And here's the thing, folks. When you find yourself in that spot where I found myself so many times, wanting to open my mouth and nothing coming out, here's what Paul says about that, that hope to endure. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through the wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So when my mind can't fathom words to say, the Spirit knows what my heart really wants to say and knows those words and can piece them together and go to God for me. And as Brad talked about last week, be our helper. Be our helper in those times where we don't even know what kind of help that we need. And I can tell you so many times in my life, I have been at that same crossroads where I said, God, I didn't, I didn't know what to say. And I feel this weird peace within me that I can't explain. I can only just say, it's God at work. It's the Spirit at work within me. He gives us transformation 
of freedom, and of hope, but he also transforms us with confidence. I'm going to break this one open a little bit more from a different angle next week and talk about the boldness that comes with that and the power of the Spirit through us. But I want to look at just two quick thoughts on on confidence today, what this confidence means. Because it's specifically in two areas. First, it gives us confidence over our past. How did we start this, this whole sermon off today? Looking at Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Now he's going to break that open just a little bit more. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. These last nine verses, if this is Mount Everest, this is is when you're on top. Standing on the mountain, looking out over everything. Here's what he says. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. God, uh, Jesus, uh, who died, and, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What does this mean? It means the only person who can condemn you for for what you have done to him is the one who went to the cross and forgave you for all of that. The only one who can condemn you took care of it on his own. He took our place. He took our punishment for us. I thought about this this week. I have given God a million reasons to disown me. I have given God a million reasons to say I'm done with you. Enough chances. And yet he has not turned his back on me. He will never leave you or forsake you. And right there says why. Because if he's for us, who can possibly be against us? He doesn't let us go and just give us to the wolves even though we deserve it. The wages of sin are death, but Jesus took that death for us. He took our punishment for us, even though we are the ones to deserve it. And folks, let me just tell you that no matter what baggage you bring from your past, there is nothing, nothing that you can do that Christ hasn't already died on the cross to forgive. He forgives you of your past and gives you confidence over your past, but the Spirit also gives you confidence over your enemies. And this is where we have find ourselves, I think, time and time again, that spiritual battle that I talked about earlier. This is where we find ourselves. Because look how Paul wraps this up. Verse 35, he says, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's a question maybe you could ask yourself right now. Who could possibly take the love of God away from me? You might ask that about another person. Who could take this person's love away from me? Look what Paul says to answer this question. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now get this, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul could have saved some ink here and said, literally nothing can separate you from the love of God. 
And you think about that right there. Because you have an enemy who wants to tell you otherwise. That you're not good enough or that you've broken that or that you don't deserve that. You've got an enemy that tells you that it's not real. Or an enemy that says it doesn't matter. No, we have a spirit that tells us it absolutely does. And that you absolutely do. We have an enemy that, that tells us, or sorry, we have a spirit within us that tells us constantly who we are and whose we are. That we are marked with his seal. Folks, I don't know why things happen the way that they do. I don't know why things unfold the way that they unfold. I don't know why we face the hardships that we face. But what I know is this. That day by day, time and time again in my life, I have been able to take the next step forward anyway. In what looks like a dark and hopeless situation because I have something within me saying, go ahead and take that step. And it's something that doesn't always make sense to everybody. When I stop and look, I realize it's the Spirit of God telling me, it's okay, I'm here with you. Because the power, or the, the Holy Spirit in you, is the power of God in you. And there are so many days where I feel powerless, where I feel hopeless, where I feel helpless. But the Holy Spirit in you is the power of God in you. Allison's going to come back up here in just a moment and sing, sing another song for us. And we just talk about what that spirit looks like. That sweet, sweet spirit that we invite into the place, that we invite into our midst, that we invite everywhere that we are. That spirit that guides us and leads us and protects us and transforms us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your Holy Spirit. We're so thankful that you are a God who is always at work in our lives, always at work in our hearts. God, I pray we never lose sight of that. Spirit would constantly remind us of who we are and whose we are. God, we're so thankful for Jesus, for taking our sin away, taking it upon himself, for being our Savior and giving us adoption into you. We pray today in his name. Yeah. Uh-huh.
After 400 years of uh, captivity, ruthless slavery, captivity in Egypt, um, the time has come. And there's been nine plagues that Moses has, under the instruction of God, has instigated um, against Israel and against Egypt, and then a lot of it against Egypt itself. And it comes to the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn son of anybody in the land, except this one thing that Moses gives the instruction to the Israelites. He says, go at once and select an animal for your family for the slaughter of the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood, into the basin, and put it some of the blood on the top and both sides of your door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of your doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter the houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this as a ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You shall say, and I'm going to paraphrase, it means Jesus. The Passover lamb for the Old Testament was a quick, momentary, situational thing that God allowed to let the Israelites decide, do they trust him? And if they do trust him, they will obey him. And when they obey him, the destroyer will pass over. But that is what Jesus did for us in the New Testament. He laid his life down as a Passover lamb. He spilt his blood as a Passover lamb. He gave us instruction on how to live. But all of that was so that we would have the opportunity to put his blood on the door frames of our heart. We have to choose to obey him. We have to choose to follow him. And when we do that, that destroyer will pass over us. 
And so as we gather each week, and when we get ready for this time of communion, it's not just another thing that we do. It's an opportunity to remind ourselves of that special moment that took place, this great miracle in the Old Testament that foreshadowed this great moment in the New Testament that leads to this moment in our lives right now where we have to choose. Do we let the blood of God, the blood of Jesus, cover our hearts? Do we let his sacrifice cover our iniquities? And if so, let's appreciate that, celebrate that, because the love of Jesus saves us from the destroyer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here each week. But in that, it can become pretty monotonous. It can become routine. And I pray that you help us to never let that happen, that somehow each week we strive to learn more about you, we strive to learn more about us, and we strive to learn about how we need to become more like you. But also to appreciate and to celebrate that sacrifice of Jesus for us. The Passover lamb who was sacrificed to save us from our sins. The blood that was spilt to cover our hearts so that we might be washed clean and that we might be protected. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for your sacrifice.